Less than two weeks away from the trade deadline on February 10th. Talking with the front office insider, NBA analyst Ryan McDonough, former GM of the Suns on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. I'm JP Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Common Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz and MLS 3112, equal housing lender. Recording this as the news of Joe Ingles broke, and look, it's a bummer. It sucks. It's terrible. It's a downer what Joe Ingles has meant to this team. And if you haven't seen it, Woj had it first. Torn ACL, likely season ending. It's a bummer. Guy's on the last year of his contract, signed that extension my very first year here with his team. He's been instrumental in the culture. Remember all the way back to when he comes into this team, the dude had a completely different shot to where it is now. He develops three-point consistency. He's gotten to a point where not only is he awesome on the floor, but he has that, I know I may use this tongue-in-cheek sometimes, but jazz DNA. Like, he does have jazz DNA. He's a development win for the team. Coming along with Quinn, being not only a three-point sniper, sharpshooter at 6'8", he's a ball handler. And he's instrumental in getting the Jazz into their offense. And then, of course, beyond the floor. Like, this guy is hands down, already like a top three jazz player on this team, just in terms of fan favorites, I'm sure. And for many, like he might not even be three or two. He's dealing with the community. Him coming out with his wife and being impactful in the autism and special needs cases in this community, making Vivint Arena a spot that is okay for his son to come down and watch a game, having those sensory rooms in Vivint. You know my connection through the podcast that he did? His work on that side going to Salt Lake City Mayor. Like he's ingrained in this community. If only because he loves getting coffee and he goes out into the community so often. But I'm gutted for him. It sucks. He's always quick in those media opportunities. Throw a dart right back at you. He's a good presence to have around. And you could tell last night, like, they were players on the floor were equally as bumped. You lose an impact player like that, it affects you. I can't wait to see what he does in the second half because I'm sure he's going to come back and attack rehab with tenacity. And he'll be back on the floor, hopefully, in speedy time. But I'm excited what he does beyond that. Because you can tell he wants to advocate for his son, for his family, for himself. On the floor. It'll affect the Jazz. And I asked this to Ryan McDonough, what they do uh, in terms of deals and, and how this affects that. Like, this is going to be a good opportunity for Daniel House, Eric Paschal, Trent Forrest. Forrest on the playmaking side. Paschal and House because they need to make up his minutes. And he's a bigger player. Joe is. He's 6'8", 6'7". They lose that tremendous gravity that he has on the floor because he's a 40% career three-point shooter. Lose that, you're going to lose gravity. But this is step-up times for people who are on the roster right now. And I'm sure this creates another hole that they might need to address with this deadline. They've got options and 
I anticipate them and the front office aggressively pursuing things. The big question that I had for Ryan, I think the big question you have to look at for this team is how do you evaluate them when you're trying to balance what they had to do this month and what you believe that they are? There's proof of concept with the team last year, and there's proof of concept with the way that they played before this month. I mean, this has been a bad month for them. They lost 10 to 12. They're dealing with COVID. They're dealing with injuries. But what are you at full strength? And how do you balance those two things in heading into this deadline, figuring out what are the needs for this team? I'll look this up. The last time this team was whole, had all the rotation pieces, was able to slot everybody in their preferred spots. It was Christmas Day against the Mavs when they blew them out. Now, that Dallas team didn't have Luka, and you can look at that, put your asterisk where it may, but that's been how long that we've seen this group affected by the slog of the season. And the hope is that injuries don't ruin it. Rudy and Donovan will be back. Quinn Snyder will be back as he's in health and safety protocols. But sadly, Joe Ingles won't. And now adjusting the way you think about this team has to factor in that Joe Ingles won't be on the squad for the stretch run. And hey, um, if there's a game or moment that you want to look up about Joe just to go down memory lane, and I don't want to make this the Paul George versus Joe deal, but it was one of my favorite moments for Joe in a jazz uniform, 2017, in the playoffs when... He is entirely in PG's head. And he scores 20. It's game four. The series could flip to being even. He stepped up and he showed why so many Jazz fans love him. He's kind of a smartass. Podcast brought to you by Fanatics. For authentic Utah Jazz player gear, including jersey shorts, warm-ups, and more, visit fanatics.com slash jazzgameused. That's fanatics.com slash jazzgameused. Before we head out to Ryan, I want to get to it um, because he has great info on the trade deadline, thinking Danny Ainge, all of it. But I want to let you hear from one of the documents that I have on my computer. It's called, this is the title, Dumb List, just the dumbest list. Things that truly should be written on stone tablets for their accuracy. But my preseason picks for Coach of the Year, Brain Genius over here picked Rick Carlisle. That looks awful. But six man, I went Tyro Hero. So look at that. I might be smart again. But dumb list. Where the MVP race stacks up right now, all NBA, those type of things. That's on this document. It's legitimate. It's like breathing. I update it every so often. We're 50 games in. And all-star announcements are happening. The starters were announced last Thursday. The reserves are going to be put up this Thursday. So I thought, why not? Let's release my West and East All-Stars. All incomplete, the reserves with them as well. So let me tell you what I've got on my dumb list. And look, I don't think anybody credible believes Andrew Wiggins is an All-Star starter. But what happened there, I'm sure you've already done the research, your own research on it, essentially it came down to fan vote and... If it was up to the media and the players, Rudy would have been ahead of Wiggins. Golden State leveraged their fans into getting out 
and voting for the fourth best player on that team to make the All-Star squad, realize Warriors fans voted him higher than Draymond Green in their own fan voting. So let that tell you what it is. And there's a good story in The Athletic by Anthony Slater about how they leveraged a point where it was two for one to outreach with a K-pop star who led the drive for Wiggins to get so many fan votes. Rudy finished ninth. That's the deal. If he finished higher in the fan vote, I'm sure he would have been an all-star starter. But ultimately, like he's going to make it, so it doesn't really keep me up at night in that respect. Okay, to the dumb list. Stefan Jaw. Those are the starters deserving. I know Phoenix also has a deserving backcourt, and for me, they're on the reserves list, but do you think they're better than Steph or Jaw? Not right now for Jaw. Maybe a career, definitely Chris Paul is, but right now, Jaw Morant is playing at a better level. He's lifting that team. Yes, he has help, but he is a superstar in Memphis. And then Steph, Golden State, pretty self-explanatory. Front court, Jokic, LeBron. One's an MVP, the other one has won many of them in his past. As for the reserves, I got Donovan and Rudy. They're pretty clear to be all-stars in that respect. Easy calls, the way that they played this year. Three for the Jazz would have to be a lot of replacements because Mike Conley, for as awesome as he is, he's been a warrior over the last couple games playing without Donovan. He got his one last year. This year, the team doesn't have the same team success to warrant three players, but he's played exceptionally well. So Rudy and Donovan make it. Then, the three spots are pretty easy for me. Carl Anthony Towns last night showed why he's an all-star player and why that team's trying to make the playoffs for the first time in a long while, trying to advance out of the first round. That'll be very tough for them, but Carl Anthony Towns, one of the best centers in the league. He deserves it. Draymond Green being the defensive hub for the Warriors. He absolutely deserves it. And Luka, because Dallas is coming on and putting pressure on the Jazz. Like, they're right behind Utah in that fifth spot. It's because of Luka and the way that he's played. And the defense. I mean, the defense is top five over the last stretch that they've really made their ascent up the standings. So that's who I have as my all-star team for the Western Conference. If anyone gets left out, to me it would be like DeJounte Murray or Anthony Edwards. Since it's an individual thing, it's just the All-Star. Like I think Anthony Edwards would be super fun to watch in an All-Star game because he's crazy. And if you saw him describe himself as Black Jesus last week, let's go. Let's get that in the All-Star game soon enough. Sooner rather than later. I'm sure he'll, he'll have a couple appearances uh, going forward in his career. As for the East, run through it pretty quick, because to me, also pretty self-explanatory. Giannis, KD, DeMar, Trey Young, Embiid. No quibbles on who's starting over there. They kind of nailed it with the way that they voted. I think Bulls get another All-Star as well. Zach Levine, because of the way that they shock the world in their play. Giannis should get his running mate, Drew Holiday, in the fold. When Chris Middleton... Greek Freak, and Holiday around the floor, that team's very good and is not to be trifled with as one of the favorites in the East. Even though they're at fifth, last I checked, they were in that five spot. 
I think they have something similar with Jazz. They've gone through a malaise. They've had injuries. They've dealt with things. They're still tried and true. They won the championship, so they have that pedigree as well. Jimmy Butler deserves it from the heat. That team relies on him playmaking-wise. He draws fouls. Winning player, deserving. Cleveland, because they're hosting, has been an awesome story, and the one that I think gets recognized is going to be Jared Allen. Him coming over from Brooklyn, getting in that trade, been a revelation, has rim protection. He's playing so up to the LCR level and useful on the floor. My final three, you can quibble with all of them, but I think they're pretty solid. Fred Van Vliet from the Raptors, Jason Tatum with the Celtics, top 10 scorer, and then LaMelo Ball. He's my last guy in, and much like Anthony Edwards in trying to find a place for him to make the All-Star team, I think you have to find a place for LaMelo Ball to start throwing lobs in the All-Star team. When there's the All-Star draft next Thursday, not this week, but the week after, feel like the lob throwers will be in high demand for Team Durant and Team LeBron, and LaMelo would go a long way with it. If you're looking for a snub out of the East, Kyle Lowry, it's surprising for me to keep a Heat player off this list, but just in terms of numbers, Fred Van Vliet has carried the Raptors, and he's been so on that I think I have to include him. And Tatum's an elite scorer, so he's an all-star too. Those are my all-stars. Let me know how I did on my dumb list. It's going to be updated, and it's fluid. I'm willing to hear our arguments, open to conversation. We'll find out who actually makes it on Thursday as it's revealed on TNT. I'm going to talk about it with Ryan. Why don't we just expand the rosters? Let's get weird. Get it done. Why do we got to play in the sandbox? Let's expand our thinking a little bit. Those are my all-stars. Enjoy them, hate on them, whatever you like. Just one dude's opinion. We've got to get to Ryan McDonough. He is a former Suns general manager. We talked before the Ingles news came out. So while we knew it was serious, didn't know the severity of it being a torn ACL, but still, um, he provides perspective on that and how you think about this as a team when you go through this lull, you have a month like January, and then heading into the deadline, what do you do? How do you think about your team? What are those tough decisions? He's been in the room. He's done it. And he's seen it from Danny Ainge. So not only good league perspective, but Danny Ainge perspective from Ryan McDonough. And I asked him about the Suns because they are unequivocally the best team in the league right now. Will that be the same in the playoffs? We'll see. Right now, the Suns are, are definitely up there. Plenty of NBA talk. Enjoy. Five stars, nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Let us know that you're listening to the podcast. They need to find this talk with Ryan McDonough, front office analyst on Roundball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. Danny Ainge was a great boss to work for. A lot of people don't know this, but I actually was hired by the Boston Celtics before Danny Ainge arrived by Wick Rousbeck and Steve Paliuka, the Celtics owners. They had just taken over the team from the Gaston family in, in late 2002, early 2003. 
So I worked in the Celtics front office for about three months in 2003. Um, obviously, anytime there's a change at a high level, um, you know, people are on pins and needles wondering what it's going to be like day to day and operationally. But uh, for me, Danny Ainge and I worked together for a decade. It was great. We had a lot of success. We had a lot of fun. Um, he's a guy who really delegates and lets people do their jobs. He works very hard. Uh, he watches as much basketball as any executive in the league. And, uh, you know, I, I say that uh, with full respect, because uh, when you're in one of these jobs, I was obviously GM of the Suns for a little over five years, you get pulled in so many different directions. Danny is great about keeping the main thing, the main thing, keeping everybody focused on basketball, uh, player evaluation, trying to minimize distractions. Uh, and for me, it was uh, a lot of fun. The, the winning obviously makes it easier, but uh, the relationships I built with, with Danny, his son, Austin, who worked with us as well, Mike Zarin and others, uh, some of those guys are my best friends to this day. And uh, it was a really special time in the Celtics front office. What was it seeing him jump back into it in this role as the CEO of Jazz Basketball? I wasn't surprised. I, I, I thought when he stepped away from the Celtics, I guess it was the middle of last year, um, middle of 2021, that um, you know he would get back in at some point. Uh, he's in his 60s now, but he's, he's very energetic. I, I've always thought he, he seems younger than his actual age. He's, he's got a ton of energy. Um, he really hits the scouting trail hard. That's something that I think stands out. Um, obviously, it's been tougher the last couple of years with COVID and the pandemic, but um, for a top executive, he gets out and sees players as much as anybody, maybe more than anybody in the league. So uh, I thought he would resurface at some point at a high level with an NBA team. Uh, frankly, JP, I was a little bit surprised it was this soon. And, and I really think it, it just took the perfect situation, the perfect opportunity for him. He's got a great relationship with Ryan Smith. In fact, I think he's known Ryan Smith, uh, you know, since he was in his 20s before he had all the success with Qualtrics. And, um, you know, he's obviously done phenomenally well business-wise. But I think that relationship more than anything helped seal the deal. And um, those two talked. And the, the other, you know, thing that I think really helped for, for Jazz fans is uh, Danny was living in the Salt Lake City area even prior to working with the Jazz. So I think the stars just aligned and, um, I think it's something where he would have been fine maybe waiting longer to get back into the league, but it was the proverbial offer that was too good to refuse. Uh, once Ryan Smith and Dwayne Wade and uh, the new Jazz ownership came and aggressively pursued him, I think it was a, an opportunity that was too good to pass up. It's new to have a, a legend involved in basketball operations for the Jazz, but the one thing that you research on Danny that always comes up is that he's competitive. This man is super competitive, no matter what what the sport. I talked to Michael Pena, the actor. He's talking about how competitive that guy is on the golf course. Same with Darren Williams. He says that about uh, Danny Ainge when they're playing golf together. What is your best Danny Ainge being competitive just for the sake of competition story? Well, first of all, I think if I were competing against Darren Williams in anything, I'd let him win, watching him fight uh, recently. I, I don't think yeah. I'd want to beat that guy and get on, get on his bad side. Um, when I was in the Celtics front office and I was there from 2003 to 2013, the first 10 or so years, Danny was in charge of basketball operations. Um, he did shooting contests against Paul Pierce, who was an active player, an all-star, um, finals MVP, obviously on his way to the Hall of Fame. Danny would do shooting contests against Paul Pierce uh, and, and it damn near beat him. He would be very close to either, he'd either beat him, uh, you know, play to a draw. And this was when Danny was in his late uh, 40s, early 50s. Um, so just to see him be able to get out there, uh, he, he wasn't, I, I think if it was a cardio contest, he wouldn't have done very well against Paul Pierce, but uh, his hand-eye coordination, the ability to shoot the basketball uh, really stuck with him. I, I'm not a golfer. I've heard stories of how competitive he is on the golf course. And then 
One final thing that stands out um, is uh, we would do an NCAA tournament pool, and I don't want anybody to get this out of context for no money. We just we just do it to do it, uh, you know, just just keeping score because we were competitive internally. And, um, you know, one of the things after I, I won a couple in the first couple of years, uh, he, he was like obsessed with the format because what we do, JP, was seed times round. So basically, um, you, you get points, you get more points for taking an underdog if they advanced. And uh, it, what ended up happening is, especially if there were a lot of upsets, that the bracket would end relatively quickly, like after the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, uh, just because you could stack up a bunch of points early and the latter rounds became less important. Uh, so Danny was like obsessed with the format. He looked at it. He talked to a bunch of people about it. I uh, frankly, I think I was winning so much, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so, we, you know, as, as time went on, we changed the NCAA tournament format to make it more standard and weight kind of the final four in the national championship that much greater, which, you know, to, to his credit, he did beat me a couple of times toward the end. But uh, that, I digress. That's, that's a bit another story for another day. Do you have the edge? Did you end up on top uh, with him in these tournament pools? I think it was pretty close. I mean, we, we, we did a lot of that stuff. Cause honestly, you know, when you're sitting there um, and this is something we did uh, in the Celtics front office that I think was a little unique, we'd go out and scout throughout the year in person and then including through the conference tournaments and then in the NCAA tournament, especially that first weekend when there's so many games, uh, we'd sit together, usually in Danny Ainge's office in the old Celtics practice facility in Waltham, Massachusetts, and he'd have four TVs up. And we'd watch all the games. I mean, JP, we'd be there uh, from Thursday at noon Eastern or whenever the games start through, you know, the end of Sunday, really, and, and just watch game after game after game. So it, it gave us a reason to uh, not only scout players and talk about players, but to stay competitive, you know, gave us another reason to watch and, and maybe root for certain teams as far as helping your bracket. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall, it's probably a wash as far as, um, you know, who won more. Uh, I think whenever he won, I, you know, I probably had to buy him a lunch at Chipotle, you know, although he's like their best customer of all time. Um, it, and, you know, then when I won, maybe we got some pizza or something. But uh, either way, we, we had a ton of fun with it. And I think that's something that stands out with him. We find different ways to be competitive and to keep things, you know, fun and, and fresh because, um, look, it's, it's great to watch basketball. These jobs are a lot of fun. Uh, like any other job, it does get to be a grind at certain times day to day. Uh, so he was always great as far as, um, you know, mixing it up and shifting the mood and, and uh, you know, creating different competitive things to, I think, keep all of us engaged and uh, have every day be a little bit different than the day before. Well, and that's what I find so different about uh, being a basketball decision maker. Not only are you in the moment with, with your team right now, you have a trade deadline coming up, but you also have the draft. You have free agency. You have all these multiple timelines that you're dealing with. The day-to-day, -day that this one thing in front of me also impacts something longer down the road, if that makes sense. It does, and that's one of the hard things, especially in terms of the relationship between the front office and the coaching staff, because the coaching staff is obviously day to day, game to game, uh, even possession by possession. They live and die by each game. And uh, and that's why it's so hard sometimes to take a step back and separate that. And, and those will be a lot of the conversations, not only in the jazz front office, but in front offices around the league over the next week and a half as we approach the trade deadline on February 10th. Um, you know, that, that's teams have to take an honest look in the mirror, figure out where they are, you know, how realistic is, um, you know, them achieving whatever their goals are this year, whether it's making the playoffs, advancing in the playoffs, competing for a championship or looking ahead to the future uh, and loading up on young players, draft picks, things like that. So, uh, yeah, that, that is one of the challenges of the job. Um, Danny's as good as anybody I've ever seen as far as keeping multiple balls in the air. It's, it's a juggling act, JP, as an executive. Uh, you have to keep, uh, you know, obviously coaches, players 
owners, fans, media, uh, the league office, everybody happy, player agents, I could go on and on, but it's not an easy job. And uh, I think the ones who are able to keep all those people at least satisfied, if not uh, very happy, do the job better than others. And I think that's why Danny Ainge has done it as well as anybody in the NBA over the past two decades. A lot of phone time if you're an NBA executive. You've been on both sides of this, uh, trades with Danny Ainge. What's the difference in being on the inside with the Boston front office and then on the other side, being with the Suns and negotiating with Danny? Yeah, they're obviously very different. Um, one of the things Danny was great about when I was in the Celtics front office when we worked together was delegating, especially to myself and Mike Zarin, uh, who's still, you know, number two guy with the Celtics. Brad Stevens is obviously running basketball operations now, but uh, Danny really delegated a lot of responsibility to Mike and I, uh, especially initially, as far as making calls with other teams, establishing contact, uh, seeing what other teams are looking to do, and then most of the time toward the end, he would get involved and I uh, kind of you know punch the deal across the finish line if there was a deal to be had. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, you know, that's the thing with him. He he's, uh, historically hasn't done a ton of in-season moves, at least not recently. Um, you know, he, he certainly got the better of us with a Isaiah Thomas deal in Boston. We did another deal uh, with Brandon Wright going from, from Boston to Phoenix. So been involved on a few deals, you know, on both sides of a few deals um, with him. But uh, I think, you know, more than anything, uh, he won't do a deal just for the sake of it, right? He won't make a trade just for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, looking busy. Uh, John, to quote, quote John Wooden, uh, never make mistake activity for achievement. Uh, he's not going to, um, you know, just make a lateral move or do something just to shuffle the deck when the uh, he doesn't think the net outcome will be very different. So, I'd expect him to be uh, prudent. Uh, I know he's heavily leaning and relying on Justin Zanuck, who's done an excellent job as general manager of the Jazz. I think Justin is the one who's on the phone more day to day and um, you know gauging uh, what other teams are, are looking on, you know at doing. But uh, and I think that's one of the things that. A lot of people misinterpret JP. Um, these jobs have gotten so big and there's so many people involved. Um, the top decision maker usually does get most of the interest and attention, uh, but, but it takes a number of people. Uh, yeah, so, so for the Jazz, clearly Danny Ainge and Justin Zanuck for two. I'm sure Ryan Smith and his group will be involved, especially if there is a deal to be had or there's you know, close to a deal. Um, but, but for Danny, he'll be prudent, he'll be pragmatic. And I think he, you know, especially in the short term, he'll rely heavily on Justin Zanuck because Justin knows Quinn and the players uh, better than anybody and what, what the Jazz have. And he's also the one who, over a number of years now, has been working the phones and knows what the other 29 teams are looking to do as well. Well, and I'm sure you've dealt with Justin before. His, his reputation precedes him in how he's done his job, dating back to the time when he was on the agency side. What do you see as some needs? For the Jazz, I think they're pretty obvious. Everybody's looking for a three and D wing, but there are so many teams looking at them and not enough three and D wings in the league. Everybody could use that sort of player. What would be an obvious thing that would be out there? Some names to watch as you head to towards the trade deadline. Well, I, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think the Jazz' biggest need is at the wing. Um, obviously, the unfortunate injury recently to Joe Ingles. Um, so if, if he, it looks like he may be out for an extended period of time, we don't want to speculate, but, um, you know, so, so I think that was a need even prior to the injury or potential injury to angles uh, becomes more of a need now. And then I think the question for Utah is um, perimeter defense as well as something I, I would yeah. look at JP as, as a need. Um, and obviously when, when Rudy Gobert uh, plays, um, you know, he's the best interior defender in the league. Uh, in my opinion, by a wide margin, when he plays, um, you know, he makes up for uh, covers up for a lot of mistakes, in my opinion, on the perimeter. And when, and I think you see that more when he doesn't play. Right. So um, I think what 
the Jazz need to figure it out is, uh, are there, you know, a, a bigger wing defenders in particular who can help them? Uh, obviously, somebody who can space the floor and make a shot. Um, you know, are, are those kind of guys potentially available in the marketplace, uh, you know, at, at a high end? guy like Jeremy Grant from Detroit, although I imagine the Pistons put a high bar on him. I keep an eye, but, but, but that's what I would do. You know, as from now from a media perspective, as a fan, uh, I go to the teams, obviously toward the bottom of the standings who aren't in the playoff, maybe aren't even in the play in range. Uh, see if they have available players uh, who fit those roles. I, I think Grant, you know, is the best player who may be traded, putting aside, uh, you know, the Ben Simmons and De'Aaron Foxes of the world and guys that uh, I don't think will be coming to Utah, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd start there. And then also, um, you know, can, can they find a ball handler playmaker with size? I, I know, again, that's a difficult thing to find, but especially if Ingles is out for an extended period of time, Joe's played so well in that role. You know, he's what six seven. Uh, he's got good length. He can make plays over the top. He can make a shot. Um, I think it was a need even before uh, you know Ingles went down to Minnesota the other day. Um, now, if, if it looks like he'll be out for a while, I think that's a bigger need. So that's what I keep my eye on for a Jazz fan. Uh, you know, perimeter defenders and and also a, a bigger wing playmaker with size who can also defend. But uh, as you mentioned, that, that's a challenge. I think if you asked all thirty teams in the league, that that's the type of player they're looking for at this point. Everybody's looking for that. And sometimes you find three, no D or D, no three. Like the, the, yeah. these players are, are a high, high price. That's why like Mikhail Bridges, awesome for, for the Suns. They have them. They're fine. Looking at the plan, how that impacts the trade market. Do you think teams are, are starting to see that playing carrot and hold on for longer to their assets rather than just being a seller um, earlier in the deadline? I think so, JP. And I think that's a good thing for the league overall. And it's something I pushed for when I was at GM. My first couple of years in Phoenix, we won 48 games the first year and tied for the best record ever by a non-playoff team. 48 wins was ninth in the Western Conference in 2014. Uh, the next year, we started out 28 and 20. Again, a winning record and had to break the team down. This is before we fully leaned into the rebuild, uh, which ended up with, uh, you know, the guy you just mentioned, Mikel Bridges, and in addition to Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and, and others who have uh, since moved on from the Suns. But uh, yeah, I think it's a good thing for the league. And I think it does make it uh, a seller's market, so to speak. For example, uh, going back to Detroit and Jeremy Grant, um, they're one of the few teams, Orlando's maybe another, uh, that is you know, not even in the play-in mix. And that's what, yeah. uh, that's what it's done. And that was, I think, the, the goal, JP, was to ha have more of the 30 teams um, with something to compete for. As we approach the trade deadline, uh, that has happened. And, and I'll give you an example. I think in years past, you know, a team like the Sacramento Kings, um, you, know, you know, is having a, a disappointing year, I think, relative to their internal expectations uh, with De'Aaron Fox, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, uh, you know, has taken a big step this year. They drafted Davian Mitchell. Um, I, I think they had, you know, high expectations like, hey, we, we might be a, a play, play in team, you know, uh, they're out of that range now they've underwhelmed, but uh, with 30 plus games left, they're still, you know, in the mix to get to 10th. Right. And so that makes uh, those teams, even the teams in the 11, 12, 13 slots in both conferences. Uh, I look at Indiana and the East in the similar position uh, as in, I think in years past when it was only eight into the playoffs, those teams would have been automatically sellers or at best they would have held what they had and rolled it over to the off season. More likely they would have sold. I think now they're um, potential buyers, you, you know, especially if they're feeling 
some short-term pressure internally uh, from ownership or the players in the roster or the coaching staff uh, to upgrade. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, a seller's market, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I'd look at, you know, Grant for, again, from Detroit, uh, potentially in play. Uh, obviously, Ben Simmons is the, uh, the one that get most of the attention. Uh, again, I think guys like Terrence Ross from the Orlando Magic, I don't think he's maybe as much of a need for the Jazz with Jordan Clarkson there. Those are some of the players I have my eye on as we approach the trade deadline over the next week and a half. How do you get realistic with your team evaluating during this really unique time with COVID, uh, having injuries uh, with the Jazz, with Gobert and Mitchell, and factoring your decisions coming up during trade season? Because the Jazz had a dreadful January, but is that indicative of what this team really is? I don't know about that. How do you balance those two things as you're heading or trying to make a deal? It's a good question. I think you have to evaluate your team at full strength. When we're at full strength, uh, now at full strength, unfortunately for the Jazz today, may be different than it was two days ago, depending on what happens with Engels, because at full strength, maybe uh, their full roster minus Joe Engels. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but, you know, you, you say, all right, with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell in the lineup, uh, let's assume for the sake of this exercise that Engels is out for a while. How good can we be and what do we need? And, and so I, I think, um, you know, probably uh, the, the answer is uh, we think we can be a team that not only is in the top six in the Western Conference and, you know, makes the playoffs, avoiding the play in, but uh, we can win a round or two in the playoffs in advance and compete for a championship. And if that is the answer, then you're probably looking to add to your roster, right? So, um, you know, so I think those are the internal discussions. Um, they, I'll, I'll be honest with you, JP, the Jazz were my preseason pick to win the championship. I had them beating the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, in the finals. So, um, you know, I, I think this team does have a relatively high ceiling, uh, but they do have some needs. And I think if they're going to go for it, um, you know, you know, they may have to look to upgrade again, especially on the wing. But, uh, you know, I like what they've done offensively. They've had uh, one of the best offenses, if not the best offense in the league in terms of offensive rating. And then I think the question is, um, you know, with their offense and with a healthy Rudy Gobert, uh, keep in mind his minutes will probably be extended in the playoffs. Uh, is that enough or do they have to add, you know, a defensive piece or two, another playmaking piece or two? Uh, I think it's more likely the, the latter, but, um, you know, again, everything is so fluid and that's, that's why it's so hard in the NBA. Things change quickly, especially with the recent news with the Angles injury. Now, let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. Assets available. If you're looking at this Jazz team, what would you value as a rival GM? Well, I mean, it's it's difficult because they, they they're a veteran team, and so usually if you are trading, um, you know, a player in his prime. Uh, you know, again, we'll, we'll use them just because they're easy examples that we refer to, but a, a Ben Simmons at a high end, Jeremy Grant, uh, guys like that. Um, you, you want young players and draft picks because you realize your team is uh, most likely going to get worse. Um, that, that's why it's a difficult fit for the Jazz. So so I, I think what teams will look at uh, with Utah is 
you know, maybe they're trading with another better team, uh, you know, a team that's in the playoff mix or in, in the play-in mix who's looking to improve in the short term. Uh, is it a veteran for another veteran? Because I think mm -hmm. if you look at, um, you know, young players and draft picks and things like that, other teams will win the battle over Utah when you stack up the assets. Um, and, and that's not unusual. I mean, when, when you go for it like the Jazz have in a team that's consistently in the playoffs as they have been the last five or six years and advancing in the playoffs, um, you, know, you, you tend to, to, to skew more toward veterans. That's just what happens. Um, so is, is there a positional fit where, um, you know, say Utah has, you know, a surplus either, you know, on the front court, back court, whatever it is, uh, where they can add on the wing. Um, I think those would be the conversations they have because, again, some of the draft picks are encumbered. And then I, some of the, I think one of the challenges is when you're in championship mode and go for it mode, your young players on your roster don't get to play a whole lot. So if they don't play a whole lot, they tend not to build a ton of value in terms of the trade market. It's just human nature. Uh, people only pay for, or usually only pay for what they've seen and what's proven on the court. Uh, so that's where I think you know, maybe a veteran uh, swap with another team for a veteran that the Jazz think is a better fit at a position of need. Uh, that's something I'd potentially keep my eye on as well. The Suns, former team uh, that you were with, they were impressive last week as the Jazz played them twice, one in Phoenix, one in Utah, both wins for Monty Williams and that crew. What has been the most impressive part for you watching them this year? Well, I think just overcoming the disappointment of last year's finals, uh, they were up 2-0. It looked like they had it. They had the championship in their grasp. And then uh, behind the great Giannis and Denokumbo, um, timely plays by Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton, uh, Milwaukee won four in a row. And I, I just think that disappointment, JP, when you're, when you're that close and when I worked with Danny Asian, the Celtics front office, uh, that was kind of the situation with us in, in 2010. Um, when we played the right. Lakers in the finals, uh, we had beaten the Lakers in the, in, in the finals in 2008 for the championship. The next year, Kevin Garnett got hurt, actually in Utah, in Salt Lake in 2009. Um, so the, the Lakers went on to beat the Orlando Magic. And then in 2010, it was kind of the rematch. You, you know, let's see who's better. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the Celtics won, the Lakers won. Now the Celtics and Lakers play again. And for us in Boston, we were up, I think, 14 points in the third quarter of game seven, and it slipped through our grasp. And uh, just, just the mental fatigue to get over that, to move on, to realize, you know, you have at least a 12-month or so slog just to get back to that point, you know, 11, 12 months just to potentially be able to compete for a championship, and, and you realize how hard it is to get there. And Phoenix has passed that test with flying colors. I mean, there's no, you know, hangover effect from uh, getting to the finals and falling short. If anything, they've gotten better. They solidified, uh, I think, a spot of weakness. The backup center uh, last year, bringing in JaVel McGee, who's played very well. Uh, Bismarck Biombo has played extremely well. And then uh, I think as you look at you know potential all-stars, uh, they have two locks, in my opinion, in the backcourt, Chris Paul and Devin Booker. I think both of those guys played well enough to uh, be starters. And then you know I'm, I'm biased because we brought them in, but uh, I saw – friend Bobby Marks on Twitter today is pushing from Mikel Bridges to be an all-star. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's by far the best team in the league. I think they probably should get three and uh, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I'd love to see Bridges and DeAndre Ayton make it, but um, they've really, you know, gelled well. And I think the unselfishness when I watch them play stands out. I mean, they're a team that when they go to the bench, they don't have a ton of holes. And uh, they also have two elite closers in Chris Paul and Devin Booker who tend to execute and win close games down the stretch. I saw Bobby tweet that out. Shout out. Uh, utahjazz.com round ball roundup guest Bobby Marks. He's been on this show before, but he doesn't have Mitchell in there as an all-star as well. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. well, I don't you, know. Can't, you, you can't have him back on. Can't, That's blasphemy. It is blasphemy because you have to have Gobert. Obviously he had him, but Mitchell as well. I mean, they've both been playing at an all-star level. We got to remember when these players were on the floor, they were playing at an all-star level. 
For sure. Yeah, I, I think I think Rudy and Donovan make it. Uh, and, and then if I could get on my soapbox here for a minute, JP, and this is something I tweeted about last year at the um, at the All Star selection uh, when they selected the reserves last year. Um, if you look at the history of the All Star game, uh, it the, the rosters have been locked at twelve players forever, right? So you can go back decades. So I don't understand why, as the league has expanded and rosters have expanded, now there are thirty teams. There are 15 roster spots per team, 17 if you include two-way contracts. Why the all-star team's not at 15 guys, right? Or why is it 12? Why would you preclude? Because that way, I think it's, yeah, you you can make an argument that, um, you know, Rudy Gobert and and Donovan Mitchell should be in it. And then you could take Devin Booker, Chris Paul, Mikel Bridges. Uh, There's always going to be a cutoff. But uh, I think if you look at the leagues, the NBA is the most restrictive as far as who makes uh, the all-star game. And I, I don't think that's right. I, I don't understand it. And that's something I'd like to see the league change, especially given, you know, the other changes Adam Silver's made with the play in and things like that, that I think have been great for the league. I'd love to see them expand the rosters and be more inclusive with 15 in, in each conference. Well, and if you have incentives tied to that in your contract, I also feel for players in that respect, if you're on the cut line for the all-star, that's tough that you weren't able to get in there like Rudy Gobert had this that year uh, that he didn't make the all-star team when he was playing toward that caliber I believe in 2017 Um, but if that incentive is there why not expand the all-star roster what is it about rules and leagues where we're so tried and true in in the way that we've done things before that we're not going to change well that's a great point I I think Though, to, to your point, one of the reasons not to change is the teams and players and agents say, well, it might impact our finances with the salary cap and the luxury True. tax and all that. So, so I bring it up, JP, because, um, you know, in the next round of collective bargaining uh, negotiations, I think that would be an easy one that both sides would want. You know, kick it out, have it start in 2024, 2025, whenever the new CBA kicks in and the new media money comes in, which, you know, I think will spike the salary cap relatively significantly and say, look, this is good for everybody. It's good for the players. It's good for the league. And now the teams and their agents and the players can plan for it. Uh, I think that's a no brainer. And I hope it's something that happens in the next round of CBA negotiation. I'm all for changing rules. Get out of our old ways. You know, let's be open to new ideas. I heard a great uh, podcast the other day. They were putting forth the idea of eliminating the three-point line and also expanding the court. And I was like, you know, on its face, I don't know how that feels, but let's let's start thinking differently. I'm okay with that exercise. You'd have a lot of enemies in premium ticket sales if you expanded the court. That's took true. Away, took away those seats. You know, I don't think the CFOs and the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the high-end guys who sell and women who sell the courtside seats would really like that. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, I'm for it. It's ironic we're having this conversation just after the conference championship weekends in football, where so much talk has been made over the last couple of weekends about the coin flip, uh, another rule that I, I think you'll see change this offseason in the NFL. But uh, this is a basketball show and a Utah Jazz show, so uh, we'll <laughs> stick to hoops on on, on this pod. We can uh, leave that for the bigger thinkers on other podcasts. Former Suns general manager, and also he worked in the front office with the Boston Celtics, Ryan McDonough on Roundball Roundup on utahjazz.com. Thank you so much for jumping on. Anytime, JP. Always great to be on with you. 